Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to the New Books and in Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran, and today we're going to switch it up a bit, flip it around a bit. I might typically be your host, but today apparently I'll be a guest. I'm now officially handing the baton over to one Christopher Jane Miller of our Hunt Institute to do a flip interview in honor of my 300th podcast episode. And this was his idea, not mine. So here goes. I'm hoping for the best. Christopher, it's all yours. Thank you so much, Dr. Raj Balkaran, for giving me the opportunity. And I'm really honored to be the one who gets to do this. And I did reach out to you and ask if I could. And the reason I did is because you've been so generous over the years to so many of us scholars in featuring our work and the other projects that we're doing, including my own. So when you interviewed me not long ago, you mentioned that your 300th episode was getting near. And then as time went on, I thought, well, if you'll let me, I'd love to have the chance to ask you some questions, let the audience get to go, get to know you a little bit better. And so uh, that's what we'll do today, if that sounds good to you. I'll be sitting on my 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 thumbs, my podcasting, my questioning thumbs. I will be, uh, I will allow you to uh, to to interview. Absolutely, it should be fun. Actually, I've been interviewed for um uh, for publications. There were, uh, I think, three uh, flip interviews that were publication oriented. But of course, this is a conversation with X scholar uh, figure, and so um, unlike the other interviewees, you have free reign <laughs> to ask me whatever you'd like. I'm excited. Yeah. And when I started to think about what I would ask you, I thought it would be nice to blend a lot of these things together to make a little bit of a, uh, some confetti of who is Dr. Raj Balkaran and, uh, and, and add those things in. So um, I know that my colleague, for example, Krista Kuberi from Yoga Alliance interviewed you for your 200th episode about your book, which we can talk about. Um, and now I, this being your 300th, I'm, I'm glad to do that. And I told you that I will be nice. Of course, I will be gentle as a Jain interviewing a Hindu. Uh, if I may, if I say, or someone who teaches Hinduism, um, that it will be a, a, a vegan grilling, so to speak, a vegan roast. So here we go. Let me just start off by asking you, who is Raj Balkaran, as much as you're willing to share in terms of how did you come to be the self-employed scholar scholar practitioner that I know you've described yourself to be. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, where you come from, and and what led you into this work that you do? Yeah, I I think there are a number of um, facets, a number of hats worn by the Raj, the entity known as Raj. And um, really, funnily enough, the the older I get and the more that I practice and the more that I study, (laughs) the less I tend to identify with the various hats. But Certainly, there's a scholarly hat uh, and also uh, the spirituality hat that um, that perhaps are stylishly commingled uh, here and there. But uh, let's see. The scholarly path is interesting in that, um, you know, I always enjoyed studying ideas. I always did fairly well, uh, fairly well in school. And I, I started off a degree in English literature, English and history. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I knew I loved teaching. Love people, love teaching, loved ideas, love sharing ideas, love bridging ideas. And I thought, well, you know, I'll teach high school. I'll teach in the, at the Toronto District School Board. I was doing some administrative work for them uh, for a few years. I thought that'd be great. And, you know, uh, I do enjoy convening, leading, if you will, bringing people together. I thought, well, I can use some of those skills in administration at the school board. 
beyond just teaching. So that okay, that was the that was the dream job then. After a couple of years of of that program, life got very 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 difficult. Life was always extremely challenging from the get go. Frankly, with a number of issues in the home life and the sort of whole tensions of being double diasporic and you know you never quite fit in anywhere everyone seemed to like you but you never quite fit in anywhere you know among the spiritual people you're too smart among the smart people you're too philosophical among among uh the, the folks from in indic or you know, you know folks from south asia you're sort of some 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 lecher from the west indies among the west indians you were whitewashed among the westerners you were colorers it was just a mess it was it was a mess of uh really where do you fit in that sort of that that um that malaise and that that journey i think necessarily fosters one of a variety of responses and i was fortunate enough to have had a, a relatively contemplative temperament coming into the world and uh, it wasn't until I discovered Indic thought formally, actually in my early 20s, that I realized, you know what, there is much to be said about these aspects of self being, um, how to say, um, temporary, right? Transient. And that there is a self that looks on to your 15-year-old self and your 50-year-old self and the foolish things you're doing at each epoch of your journey. And there is an aspect of self that can look on. And so due to a variety of pressures and a variety of, you know, crises in the personal and familial uh, realm, I dropped out of school. Uh, I abandoned my degree. <laughs> I, uh, it was such a difficult, difficult time that I really was seeking uh, solace and seeking a way to really center and ground. And I, <laughs> hilariously, I was, uh, of Indic origin, I had Indian genes, and, and I, I was from a remotely Hindu-ish background, household-wise. And growing up, I was sort of a Torontonian, smart, somewhat spiritual rationalist who really didn't want much to do with organized religion, and certainly not Hinduism, because you know, you know, internalized uh, critique. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, like, uh, I was seeking. You know what? It was funny. I was as if a Caucasian person looking. <laughs> <laughs> to the east for wisdom teachings i found some inspiring books that came my way i started doing a daily mantra practice out of the blue you know my family wasn't particularly religious but i was just looking for something to stabilize and to pacify and to to go deeper so i started doing morning spiritual practice this must have been 2003 early 2003 winter 2002 was a very very dark time i ended up dropping out of school uh and then that following spring i i, I started to sort of you know uh, something shifted in me. I started doing morning practice. I went complete vegetarian. I wouldn't even look at an egg type thing. <laughs> uh, I just, it was a time of, of purification and um, discipline, I would say self-discipline. And um, that went on for a couple of months. I ended up getting an office job and I was where I had made it. I was a paper pusher. <laughs> I was a paper pusher. So I'd made it. I had a white collar job. Great. And um, I was there for some months. And then one of the managers said, we have a job that would pay you double. It would pay you double. And you'd, you're perfect for it. We can't even interview you because one of the requirements is you need some sort of post-secondary education. It's an American company. It was, it was in Toronto. Uh, but, you know, they were sort of, you know, uh, by the book. And so <laughs> uh, a manager uh, took me under her wing and mentored me a bit and said, look, you need to go back and finish your degree in anything. This will hold you back, whether at this company, another company, wherever you go. And I thought, okay, well, this is great. So 
this is about September 2004 by this time, and I'm looking through the <laughs> the course book to see, you know, what can I take? When I, what can I take? I just want one course, and the rest will fall into place. If I'm interested, I'll stay in and I'll I'll I'll, I'll do well. And I'm crossing out, you know, economics maybe nah philosophy been there done that interesting but kind of, kind of heavy and useless because you can't see the forest for the trees most days nah <laughs> it's you know etc 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 and then i'm sitting there i had a nine-to-five job and of course after uh being a head down bot for a few months uh, my extra my extra version got the better of me and i did some networking and uh, found a job in the hospitality industry a part-time job uh cater waitering I eventually got to manage parties and etc etc in toronto and so I had a shift after my, my day at the office that first Thursday in September uh, in 2004. And so I'm in my dentist chair or my lunch hour flipping through this book and just like in living color, you know, everything else was in black and white for that moment. And it just popped out at me in color, in extraordinary uh, luminescent color. Introduction to the Hindu religious tradition. I'm like, cool. I can learn uh, about, you know, Hindu thought, Hindu history, Hindu philosophy, this will be really cool. This may really well complement my own spiritual interests and maybe even help me learn something about my heritage because, you know, no one knows what Hinduism is. And after studying it for a couple of decades, I, I now less know what Hinduism is, but that's okay. Um, but I have to take this course. I can't take this course. I have a catering shift and never, ever want to disappoint or cancel or bail. They're always looking for people last minute. But I'm like, I have to take the course. Like I could feel it was one of those moments where, nope, I don't know if destiny is there all the time, but destiny is there today in this moment. This course is calling to me. And so I sheepishly called the catering company and the owner answered of all people. His name is Michael. He's like, hi, Raj. I'm like, uh, hi, Michael. He's like, do you want the night off? I'm like, what? Do you want the night off? Like, oh, you're always looking for people. You're always calling me last minute to go to work. And tonight I say hello and you ask me, do I want the night off? He's like, yeah, we have extras book. I'm like, I would love the night off. But the night off went to the course that was the first Hindu studies experience I had. I didn't even know religious studies was a discipline that day. Uh, ended up doing really well. I think I got an A plus in that course. Was really interested in some of the philosophical schools of thought. After that, I took severance, went back to school, finished the BA, finished an MA part-time, took a bit of time off, did a PhD, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the interesting uh, functions of that destiny day, as they call it, is that it didn't just bring me my academic path. It also ended up bringing me my spiritual path in a formal sense. In that, although uh, the, uh, the there's a professor at the University of Toronto in Dand, she was to have taught that course, but she was on mat leave. And a sessional instructor named Jillian McCann, who's now a professor at Nipissing University in Canada, uh, she was just finishing her PhD. She taught the course and her good friend ran a yoga studio. And at that yoga studio, there was this uh, master, this this teacher, this incredible, phenomenal teacher who was teaching there, traditional Indian teacher. And uh, I was introduced to him after the course was finished through Jillian McCann. And uh, the rest, as it says, history. I mean, we spent hundreds and hundreds of hours pouring over traditional exegesis and stories and transmissions and walks and talks and meals and... Uh, you know, lifetimes, it seems, of uh, interactions with myself and my teacher, who we called Mantriji. So there is this spiritual path and there's this academic path that's sort of ripened in tandem. Thanks to one potential destiny day, 
uh, in the dentist chair in 2004. Yeah, it's kind of incredible how uh, I think we all have these, what you're calling destiny days or these moments, dates, years, experiences that we'll never forget and that were so foundational in our own formation, whatever that may be. And it's often, you know, preempted by some kind of other experience of realizing that the world isn't the wonderful place we might have once thought it was, or we have some experience growing up of suffering or, uh, you know, just realize that samsara is here in some way, shape or form at, at some point. And there's so many directions you can take your life when that happens and people do. And there's these Indic traditions that somehow we are drawn to land in our lap or uh, especially through teachers. And it sounds like for you, I had a similar experience as well, but there's a teacher who whose orbit you came into or drawn into and, and, and that brought you into the realm of, of studying the Hindu uh, religion and Indic traditions more broadly, I'm, I'm imagining. Um, and of course, then Sanskrit. So then, so you have these kind of experiences, you're a practitioner already, then you intersect with the critical study of religion, slowly but surely through this class and then going into graduate school, right? So can you tell us a little bit about being a practitioner of these traditions and then going into graduate school and going through graduate school and how that shifted your perspective or what that did to you as a practitioner as you became also simultaneously a scholar? I saw myself as highly philosophical, sort of in the sort of common parlance sense. Uh, I probably didn't have the term in mind at time at the time, but perhaps I would identify on some level as a seeker or somebody who is uh, you know, the unexamined life, right? Someone who's examining, who's having a look at life and noticing profound connections and open to profound experiences. And, you know, and that was that was my mindset. And so um, that was always my temperament. And it was clear to me that, you know, wisdom was everywhere. I mean, the various traditions had various interesting things to say and interesting practice to offer. And studying religion formally, it just sort of validated that for me. So interestingly enough, it was such it was it was as if I was a seeker who found philosophies and practices that really resonated, that just happened to be related to the my genetic line, right? Because I immigrated to Toronto when I was three years old, right? So. There's that. So there was the the continuation of the of the practice side and the deepening of the practice side and the initiation, you know, into various practices. And there was the sort of deepening of the the refinement of awareness, the refinement of consciousness, you know, of the experiential, of the palpable experiential, you know. Well, without a taste of which one doesn't really understand what. Uh, the religious enterprise is all about, ultimately. Um, now we can use religion as a category, right? As an intellectual category uh, to mean a number of things in the mundane sense, but it is palpable to any serious practitioner or seeker or finder that religion in the experi in the experiential sense is actually what launches movements. What powers movements now? You know, so for me, there was this tightrope walk of 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 being. Uh, a, I was always an intellectual. It was just a question of turning that to the academic study of religion, right? 
learning about religion, learning about Hinduism, Judaism, Buddhism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, at the Department for the Study of Religion at the University of Toronto. And I think times have changed since then in the intervening, you know, 20-ish years. Times have certainly changed. And maybe perhaps the culture of the department has changed somewhat, but the, the University of Toronto's department is very, this is the academic study of religion. The U of T has a bunch of theological enterprises, which may be good and well for Christian theologians. <laughs> right. And so um, I, I understood that um, spirituality and certainly piety on behalf of graduate students were an occupational hazard. I think there were graduate students who were um, uh, much more pious in the traditional sense than I was, particularly of Christian ilk, but a number of traditions. It's it's a, It reminded me of sort of the yogic teaching of it's all about raga or dvesha. You study religious studies because you love God or you hate God or you're not sure if God exists or whatever it is. <laughs> there's, there's an raga or there's dvesha. This is what, <laughs> some things there. Um, uh, I'm teasing. Obviously, there's a lot of intellectual um, intrigues presented by religion. But there was this dual training because, you know, I met Mantraji in 2004, finished, I finished my BA in 2007. And between 2007 and 2010, I did, I mean, it's interesting. I, uh, later, I did my, my PhD in four years, which is relatively swift, but I actually did my master's over three because I did my master's half time because I was working easily 20 hours a week at the time to support myself. And I was training with, you know, training with my teacher uh, spiritually over that time. So it was a very formative time, actually. It was a, it was a master's on the Valmiki Ramayana. I mean, there's obviously coursework there. There's obviously language training there as part of a master's program. But to my mind, they were very different enterprises. Okay, now we're going to look at nerdy music theory and music history. And, you know, this is why Mozart did what he did. To, to react to, 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 uh, to whomever, right? Um, his, his predecessors, you know. This is why, you know, the Romantic movement came. This is what Beethoven was doing to react to Mozart. Great, lovely. No rhythm, no pitch, no music. But at the yoga studio or in his private home, that's where I heard the music. That's where I could hear the music. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I, I, I know you and I have talked about this before, and you've mentioned it in, in other podcasts that you've done, but <clears throat> using music as an example for, for this process and the, the kind of theoretical study of music versus the actual learning to play or even just listen to music um, can be two different enterprises, right? Uh, that don't That are different experiences in and of themselves, uh, and they take different methodological approaches to to undertake right and so what i find sort of fascinating about your story and some other scholar practitioners is how you're able to simultaneously inhabit these two different worlds of this critical approach to religion that in certain departments not all but in many departments in in the academy uh leaves no room for us to have this kind of private sphere of experience it's not consider it's not concerned with that so much uh whereas when you're on the yoga uh, in the yoga studio, or you're with your teacher or whoever it is, whatever tradition one belongs to, which you did, uh, you're also simultaneously inhabiting the space of having this other experience of the tradition that kind of despite the critical facts we might know about the tradition, how it formed, or traditions, whatever they are, um, you're still able to have some kind of experience that 
is unique and so foundational and perhaps uh, without reading into this too much transformative that um, you're able to still inhabit that space through the process of graduate school after graduate school and of course all the way into today where you're teaching this in such a way that it, it sort of pays tribute to both of those lineages, if you want to call them of yours, as it seems, um, as a as a self-employed scholar, so to speak. And and so I wonder, yeah, I wonder what you think about that. And and also the fact is something that you said, which is that there are so many theological schools. I've trained in these theological schools as well, where it's okay for someone from an Abrahamic faith, particularly usually Catholic or Christian traditions, to be trained critically and respectfully at the same time, because they are believers and, and that is there, but there isn't as much of an infrastructure for South Asian religions, for example, to be able to do that. So yeah, sounds like you were navigating that, all those spaces. Well, well, certainly. And even, even when I was doing my undergrad, one couldn't really do Hindu philosophy, right? The philosophy department didn't have any South Asian thought. I mean, I loved what I learned in my philosophy courses, loved them. This is where I lived, you know, uh, thinking about ideas, life's big questions. This is sort of where I live. And I, I loved history. I loved literature. I couldn't really do that in from the South Asian world, but for the religious studies department. And so uh, obviously, you know, we, we were situated in a particular moment in history and in a particular cultural context that obviously has a particular history and a particular agenda and set of biases. And that's natural. Any civilization, any history, any peoples, any nation will have, you know, what it's focused on and what it values more and what it's really, it's in its periphery and what it values less. And they'll have all kinds of prejudices about what's in its periphery. And not only because you can't see what's in your periphery and you may not have given it, the, you may not have turned your head to take a proper look before you've dismissed it. And so, you know, it is what it is. We're in the world that we're in and I have no ax to grind. It's, it's become the change, become the change. Yeah, so I guess that's why I'm asking you this question, because on your website, for example, you are a quote unquote self-employed scholar, which is a it's a, it's a new space to be kind of inhabiting to to make a life from uh, to be sort of, I guess you could say, entrepreneurial in this way. And that you're mm. you're creating the space uh, in a sense yes. with the online wisdom school. Um can you tell us a little bit about that space that you have created, uh, your online wisdom school? And how it kind of, from my perspective, I think it's paying tribute again to to both of these ways of of thinking, both of these epistemological realities that we might be in. Yeah, I think I think that's I think that's apt. Uh, the entrepreneurial journey was another journey where, much like that destiny day and the ripening of religious studies or, or the academic path or the ripening of the traditional lineal path, the entrepreneurial path too found me. Never in a thousand years did I imagine myself working for myself. I don't even think of myself as an entrepreneur because um, uh, uh, monetary metrics is like, I, I don't even do that in my personal life, much less my professional life. Um, I think of myself as an entrepreneur insofar as creating something new and clearing space more in a traditional sense, but I also have to sustain myself. I finished my PhD in 2015. Uh, I was shortlisted for a couple jobs, which is relatively impressive with the University of Calgary PhD, which is an unknown school beyond Canada, and, and you know it can be very good to mediocre depending on the on the field. Obviously, it's pretty. It has it's historically had a pretty good uh, religious studies program. I actually went there because um, Anmonius's first student um, from UVA before she went to Harvard was uh, Beth Roman, was a brilliant, brilliant chronic studies scholar. 
and I got to study with her and it was, uh, it was a great experience, but I finished, I was shortlisted because probably the teaching portfolio, I've always done tons and tons of teaching over the years was so strong. Um, uh, but in each case they went with the fit. I mean, if they're looking for someone to do gender, or they're looking for someone to do modern Hinduism, they're looking for someone to do X, Y, C, P, Q. I have yet to come across a university looking for a scholar of Sanskrit narrative at the modern Western Academy since 2015. So there, there, it's not a question of being able to get a job. It's a question of there aren't jobs to be gotten. And to this day, I intercepted a, a, a Facebook post just earlier this week on behalf of a super bright, driven, accomplished young scholar who's now desperate for an academic job and still hasn't gotten the memo. They don't exist. Okay. Very rare is it that a position is endowed, the, the glaring exception being, of course, in Jane studies, the present, or a prof retiring, or God forbid, a, a prof, um, you know, leaving this earth unexpectedly. Um, and so I really was looking for a way to stay active as a scholar while a job opened up. And um, I knew I could teach. I love teaching. I was teaching continuing studies at the University of Toronto School of Continuing Studies from 2010 to about 2017. So 2015, 2016, I started teaching uh, the public. I rang in 2016 with four cents to my name. No, like completely. I, I had all line of credit max, credit cards maxed. I didn't, you know, I didn't I did all the networking I could. I have tons and tons and tons of networks. I've had uh, easily a couple dozen jobs over the years in Toronto. Nothing, absolutely nothing. And then the PhD became a liability in most of my previous circles because you're overqualified for these jobs. And so it's like, okay, great. I just sent an email out to some former students and said, would you guys like to study? And within a month, I had enough to pay my bills. And I'm like, oh, this is what you want from a universe? You want me to sell courses? Okay. And because Here's of my, sign. yeah, because of my, nothing else, every, all other avenues were closed. And I was, you know, I've struggled in many areas of life and I've been utterly blessed in other areas of life. And one, one area of life has been given opportunities to work, right. Or just, you know, whatever. I mean, I've known people have worked a lot, all kinds of different jobs and I've never experienced like just not having the chance to earn an honest living. Like I didn't know what to do. And then I sold some courses that month one course and could pay my bills. I did again the next month and then it grew. And then I, I thought, okay, well, I'll do this until um, uh, things change in America. Cause around the same time that the landscape had really changed in 2016 in America. I thought, okay, well, I'll see what I can do to stay producing and, and support myself until things settle. And then I had a platform called power of myth, sort of uh, playing to the, the Joseph Campbellian crowd. Cause I was teaching comparative mythology at, School of Continuing Studies. I did that for a while. I did lots of one-on-one -on -one consulting, coaching work for a while. And it took some time, but it wasn't until 2020 when the world changed again. And all of a sudden, uh, working from home on Zoom, doing online education, which I'd been doing since 2017, wasn't anomalous. It was just ahead of the curve. Yep. And... And the podcast really picked up. I decided to start doing four to six episodes a month rather than uh, a week rather than a month. Uh, sorry, four to six episodes a month, you know, rather than like a semester. 
because I thought people need content, people need engagement. We're all locked down. Let's do this. Um, and I got invited to teach at a couple of different platforms, your week studies, the Oxford Center for New Studies. Um, and then it was in 2021 where I thought, well, I do these random online courses here and there with a Zoom link and a Google Drive. Why don't I just consolidate it all and build a school and build something that can sustain me and let's just see how it goes. And I ended up founding a school called, uh, it was then called the School of Indian Wisdom. It's recently been rebranded the Indian Wisdom School. Uh, it was at a URL, uh, a subdomain of roshbalkar.com. It used to be courses.roshbalkar.com, which doesn't exist. I've recently gotten a proper URL, indianwisdomschool.com. And if you look at it, there are sort of three kind of key ideas beneath the, the signage for the school, and it's scholarship, storytelling, spirituality, right? Part of why I founded the school is because it's different from when I teach at Yogic Studies, it's scholarly, Raj, it obviously infused with storytelling, especially if I'm doing a narrative text and infused with um, insights about the human experience, but the enterprise is a scholarly enterprise, okay? When I teach at the Indian Wisdom School, uh, the enterprise is actually a personal development, personal transformation enterprise, as well as a knowledge expansion. Let's learn about traditions, the history, the culture, the philosophy of traditions. But let's take the next step and learn how to apply that to life, learn how to grow from this, learn how to, et cetera, et cetera. And so I would say that being cognizant of both the outer life and the inner life is crucial. And it's something that I really resonate with. And I think that all traditions have to deal with the interplay between uh, the idealistic and the pragmatic or, or the, the, the other world, you know, this world. And I think part of what captivated me about ancient India for my studies is that just the way, just, just the way things went in ancient India, they had this, profound opportunity to have to integrate, you know, ascetic ideals into householding platforms and, uh, you know, the epics and the, the, the Puranas, et cetera, they're coming, they, they have this dual heritage, they have this historically Vedic heritage and this sort of spiritually, philosophically Upanishadic or, or Shramana heritage. And, and I think, you know, the advice of uh, the, 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 the brilliant or sophistic syncretism of the Bhagavad Gita, depending on how you view it, um, that you can actually pursue the inner life and be a sage with your your heart and your head, but be a soldier with your with your hands and your feet. And this tension, it's a profound and beautiful and important tension. And what drew me into grad studies, I actually wanted to figure out why it was such a great thing that Rama was renouncing on his very coronation day, the walking contradiction that he was. Um, but this tension is part of life. And so I think people who come to the Indian Wisdom School, it, it, they're they're it's really intriguing because they're super smart. I mean, they're people who listen to the podcast, they're interested in scholarship, they're interested in ideas, but they're also super spiritual. Like they want to not just understand about the significance of Navaratri, the Indian goddess festival, for example, they want to engage practices. They want to have experiences, right? They, they want to shift their lives. They're, they're really interested in the experiential, but the experiential not divorced from the empirical. I think that's right. the sweet spot. Yes, that kind of critical edge to not let yourself go off the, the deep end, so to speak. And I think what the academic discipline does is kind of create some of those boundaries for us to to keep us on the ground while allowing us at the same time to have these uh, these other worlds of experience 
in these traditions and, and listening to these stories and these myths. And so let me ask you this, um, to return, to continue with this, but to return to the previous thing you mentioned, which is which is myth and narrative, which is narrative, Sanskrit narratives are your area of, of scholarship. Uh, you have several publications in this regard, uh, and, I, and I'm referring to your books. Um, I remember when, for myself, someone handed me the book that you mentioned, and I hadn't thought about this kind of defining moment until you mentioned it again, but when 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 my friend Derek Mills, who is the founder of what used to be Yoga Glow and is now Glow, he handed me, when I used to live in Southern California, a copy of Joseph Campbell's uh, The Power of Myth. Uh, and, and I started reading about the hero's journey and all these things. And so this is before I got really deep into South Asian uh, religions and, and, and studying mythology and all the philosophy of South Asian religions. But uh, I remember that being a, a kind of profound turning moment for me in terms of what I wanted to study and why I wanted to study, because... Uh, it was it was scholarly and it's in its time that book and it led me into the study of 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 South Asian traditions eventually. So, what tell us about myth? Uh, why is myth storytelling uh, narratives and Sanskrit narratives? What does this bring to uh, to 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 not only the scholarly world but also to the practitioner's world? Because I think there's a there's a thirst here that I saw in my own cohort when I was studying in these classes that continues today that is somehow uh, being met outside the academy through your online wisdom school. And it's grounded in some ways in major part by these Sanskrit narratives and myths. So what role does this play? In 2010, at the ripe old age of 30-ish, some good friends of mine um, playfully teased me about, you You haven't seen Star Wars. You haven't seen... Um, uh, you haven't seen Lord of the Rings? No, no, I haven't. You love it. I mean, you you would love it. You need to uh, listen. For whatever bizarre reason, I was born an adult, and circumstance didn't help much for having a childhood. So I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I have some sense, you know. I've I've lived among Muggles for a long time, so I you know I do have some sense. <laughs> but I know I haven't seen it. They sat me down, literally, a couple in particular. And they showed me Star Wars, episode after episode, in one or two sittings. And they sat me down and they showed me um, Lord of the Rings, episode after episode, in one or two sittings. And to my to my sort of uh, archetypally oriented mind, uh, it was like, guys, religion's gone nowhere. Religion's now in sci-fi fantasy. I mean, these are these are ancient religious ideas, like. I mean, the, the, I mean, these are these are not just religious ideas. These are you know personal growth hacks. You know, Aragorn, deposed king, he can't he can't get his stuff together because he doubts himself. You know, he's got demons, right? He's fighting his demons. He's his he's given his power away to this fear of the folly of his ancestors. And what these demons are? What the ghouls and goblins of the past? He has this moment, it's sort of like a Pithri Puja, you know, he has this moment where he faces the, the, the disembodied goblins of his past. And that's his moment where he says for the first time, I'm your king and I will command you and you will do what's right. And I will relieve you from this hell realm that you're in. To my mind, this wasn't new. This was just repackaged. At the same time, by some stroke of uh, serendipity, I uh, was approached uh, by someone at the School of Continuing Studies at the University of Toronto. Uh, as to whether or not I'd be interested in doing a in doing a course, I had 
finished my master's at that point. I thought, sure. So 2010 was really the year that my, my public teaching really began. And I thought to myself, yeah, I would love to do a course where I compared, uh, where I looked at some sci-fi fantasy. And then I looked so, at some ancient religious narratives, probably mostly from the ancient Near East, and um, present that. Great. I, I designed the course. I pitched the course. The course is running. The course is, you know, set to run. People have registered, and it's about a month before I'm like, you know what? I better, you know, I always have a lot on the go, so I typically carve out time and be like, I've got to do this today, otherwise it's not going to be done. So I had a week going to tour. I'm going to do the prep for this course. As I'm researching for the course, I discover, wait a minute, there's this dude named Joseph Campbell <laughs> who has read all of the religious narratives he can get his hand on, and he distills them into, you know, the, the famous or the infamous um, hero of a thousand faces. Uh, oh, wait a minute, there's this dude named George Lucas who literally used what he distilled to reverse engineer a modern myth. Wait a minute, Tolkien was in conversation with... Um, Lewis, we also looked at Narnia, Chronicles of Narnia. Wait a minute. What's going on here? So I pick, I just picked this up instinctively, and then I saw all these historical connections. I thought, oh, fantastic. They're not going to think I'm nuts because I'm not the only person saying this. Lucas is doing this on purpose. Great. Fantastic. Loved, loved, loved that course, actually. Loved looking at ancient Near Eastern narratives, and we looked at biblical narratives as well, right? We looked at various scenes from, you know, these epic uh, blockbusters, pun intended, and students' minds were completely blown because they were able to see the utility and the power of myth. They saw the power of myth, shorn of dogma, shorn of expectations, shorn of the sociocultural BS they're often anchored by, moored in, mired in even shorn of that you know there's a reason why people were applauding in the theaters in the 70s when luke destroys the death star there's a reason why daenerys on dragonback is absolutely hair raising in the right context there's a reason for that so uh, the, the spiritual motifs encoded in larger than life narrative which essentially is mythology can be consumed and digested in a safe way outside of the traditional religious paradigm. This is, to my mind, why Game of Thrones was huge, because it was feeding people stuff that they normally wouldn't eat. Yes, they made and it palatable. Palatable, and this is why it was a little bit unsatisfactory towards the end for a number of people, because it, unconsciously it's not finishing the spiritual story. It's finishing the... the, the like you don't really get a sense of of what was the point of all of this, all of these sort of spiritual undercurrents or the, or the, or the supernatural, the larger than life undercurrents, where do they go? They don't really come together in a powerful way. And so yeah, loved narratives, love studying narratives. I was doing this. Uh, I just finished a, a, a master's on the Valmiki Ramayana. It took me a long time to realize that <laughs> hilariously, right? No, no, no one can see themselves. It took me a long time to realize that this hobby teaching continuing studies, a la Joseph Campbell, and who obviously needs to be critiqued, but he's obviously quite right as well. There's lots there to look at. Um, teaching this, it took me a while to realize that this kind of continuing studies, you know, indulgent hobby of teaching and what I was doing with the Itihas Purana were not 
<laughs> wait a minute, duh, you're studying story. It's what you do. You study story. I mean, how are these so compartmentalized for you? And um, once that all came together, it was clear to me that um, storytelling should and would and could be a crucial aspect to my teaching. Uh, I edited a, a piece for the AAR's, uh, the American Academy of Religions web magazine in 2018. I have no idea how a nobody without a position, three years out of his PhD is editing anything for, who knows? I don't know how these things happen, but I got to edit a piece, some fascinating scholars contributed on storytelling in the, in the Hindu studies classroom, not just teaching about story, using story as a mechanism of teaching. And I think that so much of tradition can be conveyed accessibly through narrative, I believe that is the function of narrative. The function of narrative is to encode themes. And the narratives that live the longest are the narratives that encode and disseminate the themes that are the most relevant, most foundational, most form formative. And I think there's a symbiosis that the culture preserves a narrative which preserves the culture. It's a symbiosis between long-lived narratives and long-held cultural values, themes, objectives. Of course, tales like the Ramayana are interpreted time and time and time again, but never is there a Ramayana where Rama does not renounce. It's a sine qua non of the tale of Rama because the core idea is the idea of this contradiction between the householder and the renouncer, which very much is the contradiction of, of classical Hinduism. Absolutely. Anyhow, I don't know if I've said too much. No, Ask it, me any other question. You're it's, a, it's a great, uh, <laughs> no, it's a great summary of, 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 of the question or the answer to the question um, of the importance of myth, but also the importance of myth in Sanskrit narrative. And you've published quite a bit in this regard. Uh, you have, correct me if I'm wrong, four books out. And I think you're working on another project, but you have a lot out for being a public scholar who's not affiliated with the university. When one looks at your publication history, uh, you could be very well a senior scholar in a university. So uh, how is this work and this way of understanding myth and Sanskrit narrative manifesting in your own work? I, I, I tell, I'll read some of the titles briefly of your books, and then maybe you can tell us a little bit. So on your website, for example, you have the goddess and the sun in Indian myth, and then you have the goddess and the king in Indian myth visions and revisions in Sanskrit narrative, and most recently, and 20,000 copies have been sold, the stories behind the poses. Can you tell us a little bit about how myth and narrative uh, go through these books in, in both maybe scholarly storytelling and then perhaps even transformative ways? The tension of Rama renouncing on his coronation day, the symbology therein was utterly captivating. I could see that this was saying something profound, but couldn't quite understand what it was saying. And that spawned a master's. The master's was uh, perhaps properly uh, bifurcated insofar as in conjunction with the Royal Military College of Canada and a professor of defense studies there, a professor who studied um, just war theory in the West. Um, uh, I ended up looking at the extent to which the Valmiki Ramayana perfectly legitimizes uh, and justifies war under particular conditions, conditions which which map on astonishingly well to Western just war theory. But my favorite part of the dissertation was the last third of it, which ended up in a journal of Vaishnava Studies publication about nonviolence of the Valmikira Mayana and the extent to which, while it does that prima facie, 
the Valmiki Ramayana is a tale of separation, a tale of suffering, a tale of sarvam to come. It, it subversively uh, renders Rama miserable in this, in, 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 in the reign of God on earth, renders the, 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 the people so petty so that he has to give up Sita, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, the Ramayana coming from the primordial curse verse, Ma Nishada, at the slaughter of the, 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 the hunter slaughters the, the male of the pair of the crouches of the Sarah screens as they're mating. And Valmiki curses the hunter. And this is the first verse that enters the Sanskrit language, according to tradition. The Valmiki Ramayana is therefore a curse on wanton violence. And it likens the justified violence of the Kshatriya to the wanton violence of the hunter. Because the Valencian Rama executes the enemy of his ally from hiding and is rebuked Fallen's dying breath for this. And he gives a flaccid response. Oh, I was hunting. It's allowed. No, this is the text brilliantly eliding the justified violence of the warrior without which the world could not stand. And the wanton violence of the hunter saying, listen, sure, you might be justified, but whenever you got blood on your hands, mm, not so sure. Right. So I was fascinated by this tension. Uh, I now think of this as the dharmic double helix, right? These two poles of dharma, you know, poverty and liberty, right? Like world affirming, world denying. And I understand Rama, the DNA of Hinduism is the dharmic double helix. And Rama is the hero of Hinduism because he's this walking contradiction who's celebrated for behaving like an ascetic. You know, from a Kshatriya point of view, Lakshmana is right. Preserve the kingdom against this perilous, um, nonsensical, you know, um, uh, plotting that's arisen for no reason. But perhaps from a spiritual sagacious level, he does the right thing. So it dawned on me when I was applying for a PhD program, I finished the master's, I was working up for a year, and I had engaged the Devi Mahatmya, not as a Devi Mahatmya, but as a Chandipata. I engaged a Devi Mahatmya as a text in which I was receiving initiation and chanting. I engaged it first as a ritual entity. And then it dawned on me, wait a minute, this is a narrative entity. And wait a minute, this narrative entity is framed by a king in exile. All of these teachings of the Mahadevi are given to a king in exile. What's up with these exile kings and forest-dwelling sages? This is a very important narrative motif. Yes, of course, the historical question of whether or not there were uh, sages in the woods doing Vedic sacrifice, important question. I don't think we'll ever know the answer to that question, but it's a very, very important question. But what we do know is that figure is... Um, it's, it, it's so important and formative to the Hindu imaginary, to the imaginaire, to the, to the literary religious imagination, which doesn't describe, but it prescribes. This ideal is important because this is a dovetailing of our two heritages, our Vedic parent, our Upanishadic parent. This is how we're going to, to articulate, encode, and perpetuate this walking contradiction. Okay, the, the tension between the householder and the renouncer. And so, you know, in, in, in studying the Devi Mahatmya, I, I paid full attention to the frame narrative, which 150 years of Indological scholarship has said was a flimsy frame just created to tack this text into the greater Markandi Prah. I should well be that as it may, it's certainly not flimsy. The frame narrative is the Rosetta Stone for understanding and decoding the symbology of the Hindu goddess. 
So that was the first book. The second book was about myths of the sun in Mark and Day in the Mark and Day Purana. So the goddess and the king and the goddess and the sun are yeah, they're 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 boring academic books. But you know, you might enjoy them. Um, Visions and revisions in Sanskrit narrative is actually a co-edited volume that is about to be out any minute now. Uh, it unites eighteen voices of you know uh, preeminent scholars on the Sanskrit narratives, the epics, and the Puranas. Uh, it is an homage to Purana Perennis that was edited by Wendy Doniger 30 years ago exactly. She wrote the foreword to this as well, a lovely, quite favorable foreword. Um, and it's sort of wanting to take the temperature of narrative studies and the extent to which we can take the Puranas as narrative and study them as narrative rather than, you know, only as archaeological digs for, you know, critical editions for what was a text before what was added later the diachronic dimension is an is important enterprise but it has in many ways been dominant historically and we are now i think um looking more towards a synchronic dimension paying a little bit more attention and i think they're both important and i think they they are mutually informative but i i, I do think that um at long last, there's a shortage of scholars who are celebrating these narratives as narratives. And I think that's very important. Now, uh, so we've got two boring academic books, which may or may not be boring. And we've got uh, an exciting collected volume. <laughs> um, I'm excited about the- that. I'm excited about that volume because you and I you and I share, at least in some way, um, maybe Parampara with Macomas Taylor. I don't know if you ever studied Sanskrit with him, but he was my Sanskrit teacher at Australian National University. So I'm looking forward because both of you have edited that and 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 to see what, what comes out of that. That's super cool. I uh, I was called in to help. Uh, I was helping him. I met him in, I think, 2015 at the World Sanskrit Conference in Bangkok. It's triennial. Um, and by 2018, when it occurred in Vancouver, I met him again and we ended up co-editing the proceedings from the Purana studies section. And, you know, just to signal the changes afoot, I believe that either 2015 or 2018, this is the first year there was a Purana section to the World Sanskrit Conference, right? So it's part of a a change that's happening in the field. And uh, I approached him in 2019 or 2020 and said, look, uh, we seem to have a good flow working together and we don't really want to strangle each other, which is great. And we seem to have, you know, similar way of, of viewing these texts instinctively, it's instinctive to us. Um, how would you like to co-edit a volume? I think it's it's. Been any, I think we need to do the Corona Perennis 2.0, but plus because you know we will include uh, um, scholars of, of the epics, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, but I said I need somebody attached to university just in case that would matter to contributors, and I'm sure it's just you know it's an important consideration. In retrospect, the world has changed and or perhaps my career is just so unique. I don't think any of them would have cared, frankly, if I co-edited it myself. But I was glad to have McComas on board. I said to him, I'll do all the monkey work. Don't you worry. I'll do all the emailing and the, and, 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 and the, the, the cajoling and the, the hurting. The cats will be herded. Don't you worry. And uh, But um, uh, also, I was really, really keen on seeing if we can get it published by uh, Australian National University Press, which is the press of his his his. Um, employer, right? Uh, because they publish open access for free. So it's a landmark volume that's available to anybody who cares about this stuff. It's not behind a paywall, which is fantastic. So I'm really, really happy that that's finally seeing the light of day. Now, the, the anomaly in the publications there is the stories behind the poses, because the other three are academic 
uh, publications and, you know, and probably a dozen or so, I guess, articles or chapters in various volumes. But the this was my first public publication, like uh, something for the public. And the stories behind the pose is it's super meaningful insofar as I didn't plan to write it. <laughs> Once again, I taught, I taught a course at Daiva. Here you go. Daiva strikes again. Uh, for those of you listening, uh, Daiva means of the gods and the fate, dest destiny along those lines. Um, destiny strikes. Um, I taught a course at Yogic Studies in 2020. Yogic Studies, I love Yogic Studies, actually. I've had Seth Powell. He was a, then a um, PhD candidate at Harvard uh, when he created this brilliant online platform that offers um, offers like, like high caliber uh, academic courses for, for public access. And, you know, I'm all about public access, frankly. Uh, he's now Dr. Seth Powell, which is fantastic. He's just finished his PhD and had him on the podcast a couple of times. And I think in one of our conversations after the his interview, um, he said, blah, 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 why don't you teach for us? We've been looking for someone to do a course on yoga and Hindu mythology, but we were looking for the right person. Clearly we, we found them. So I'm like, okay, sure, why not? So I created a course called Yoga and Hindu Philosophy. And um, the end of 2020 is when we, we, we taught it. Um, one of the students of that course, for some reason, the vast majority of my students are teachers. Like whether it's the Indian wisdom school, you can study certainly a lot of teachers, a lot of, you know, leaders, coaches, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not sure exactly why that is, but that's just the way it seems to work out. And one of my students was a teacher who's been doing yoga for decades. Her name was Ampara Rodriguez. She shared some of the stories with her, her tribe. One of her tribes, uh, <laughs> tribes persons, uh, one, one of her students, I believe her name is Monica, if I'm not mistaken, worked at Leaping Hair Press. Leaping Hair Press is a press that specializes in illustrated books for adults. And so I get an email two months later, uh, February, maybe March, April-ish, March-ish. 2021 hey uh this we've caught wind of this course and the this idea is we think this would be a great idea for uh, a book you know for about 50 poses or so and i'm like i wasn't planning on writing this book this year i wasn't planning i was planning on writing a mahabharata book or starting a mahabharata book which i still haven't started but that's okay um <laughs> i said yes and i ended up going back and forth and then this book was produced uh, later that year, mostly the writing was done, I think, in October 2021, because uh, they were hoping to get it out for Yoga Day 2022, which they did, which was June 21st. And when it, I received a physical copy, I had no idea or, or no inclination that I would ever, ever write a book that was physically so beautiful. The illustrator did such a gorgeous job. And I thought to myself, you know, this really adds so much value, especially for visual learners, especially when you're sort of conjuring images of the mythic imagination and the ways in which, you know, uh, they're tied to yoga postures, like warrior pose is not, it's warrior pose, but it's, it's Virabhadrasana. It's related to the story of Virabhadra, which is a wrathful manifestation of Shiva because Shiva is pissed off because his wife has just immolated herself because his father-in-law is an asshole. I mean, this is important. If you don't, <laughs> if you don't know any of this, you know, this this is not um, irrelevant. And so that's what the stories behind the poses tries to do. But what's really fascinating about that is it seems to fit so well with the public education, hybrid spiritual scholarly paradigm 
where people are now interested. I've created four or five courses at the school about the book. Um, I started doing international retreats and the book's part of that. People people come and they're interested in deepening uh, learning. So it's really taken on a life of its own. As you said, I think 20,000 copies is something where, you know, as an academic might happen in 20 years, if you're lucky. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm, so given that there's 20,000 copies and I'm sure counting sold around the world, I'm waiting when I go into my next class for the teacher, you know, they always tell stories when they're doing poses, but I'm waiting for them to quote you, which I'm sure will happen sooner or later in one of these transnational postural yoga studios, because they've read this book and they'll be able to tell the story that much more meaningfully and better and maybe longer because warrior pose is hard to hold for a period of time um, while we're in one of these difficult poses. So uh, that's fantastic, Raj. Um, and I hope that you'll post a link as you probably will because you're the one running the podcast. But I hope you will for the book and for your online school. You mentioned retreats as well. And I know you are coming to Switzerland next year where I am. And as well as you have some other upcoming retreats where you use this book and as I understand other Sanskrit narratives and practices and transformative uh, experiences. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the the retreats that you're doing? These are in-person retreats, if I understand. Yeah, I, I do. I want to share perhaps a little bit of, you know, since we're talking about the dovetailing, you know, really what the retreats, um, so I've been doing retreats locally for a number of years, but what the game changer in 20, what years are now? 2023, I think the game changer this year is that um, I've done some international retreats. So one in Australia, uh, one in the UK, one in Switzerland, one in America, um, one in Canada, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the, the retreats are an opportunity uh, for transformation. They're transformative experiences. And uh, to my mind, what I do right off the bat is offer a setting itself, which would be influential impactful enjoyable if not transformative one inspiring space the swiss alps you know by a beautiful lake you know so so natural setting natural beautiful setting uh beautiful comfortable accommodations delicious nutritious food awesome people i mean if you just have that you're good for three or four days of that and you're great but i want the stage to be set so that when I do my job to deliver the content, I mean, they, it's the next level for them, according to them. And I'm not surprised. You, you see changes in body language after three days. You see changes in them. We hit it from a variety of aspects. Um, there will be elements of storytelling. There will be elements of group discussion. There will be elements of academic lecture. There'll be elements of practice, of, of, of meditation, guided meditation, of mantra, of community time. Uh, more and more people want to end with a nice kirtan. Sure, why not? Um, and so it's really meaningful to me insofar as it brings together all of these experiences. It brings together the hospitality training. It brings together the spiritual training. It brings together the academic training. It, it's where sort of general Raj meets sage Raj meets, you know, scholar Raj. It's just, it, it brings... Uh, it, it renders useful and meaningful these disparate, seemingly disparate enterprises I've been trained in over over the decades, and it's it really is something to to hold space for people to really shift something in themselves and their lives. So it's deeply, deeply fulfilling work. Um, yeah, as for upcoming retreats, there'll definitely be one be one in 
Switzerland. Uh, one of my students, Michaela, she's a, a student at the Indian Wisdom School. She's also a, a, a lovely teacher. Uh, she runs retreats. Uh, she has a retreat center called Casa Corvo <laughs> in the in Italian speaking uh, southern Switzerland. That'll be happening in April. There's an excellent chance I'll be doing one once again in the UK at a place called the Asha, uh, the Asha Center in in in, in, in Gloucestershire, UK. Um, there's talks. I mean, I had tons and tons of people ask me to check out Esalen. <laughs> and they don't even know about the Joseph Campbell connection to my, to my past. <laughs> so, okay, maybe. So there, there might be one in California at some point soon, but I think the best way for listeners to keep in touch and what I'm doing is just go to rajbalkaran.com and um, actually, you know, actually go to indianwisdomschool.com, either or one will take you to the other and get on the mailing list and you can stay up to date, but I will, I, I will post whatever opportunities we talk about in the podcast notes for sure. That's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, you have so many things going on, but you juggle them all so well. And, and most of all, I mean, I really wanted to talk to you today and hear from you because you have given so many of us uh, a platform to share our work in a similar uh, way. And it's been very helpful to me. And I know to many of our, our colleagues, is there anything else that you want to tell us Raj about you, about your work or something I forgot to ask you about um, before we, conclude today that's a good question i don't know i let me look at my own website and see what do i do what do i do uh, okay we talked about the teaching i love teaching i love teaching in a variety of spaces we talked about scholarship uh, i know the you... podcast i think is self-evident we talked about we don't need to talk about the podcast i don't think uh or the public talks um one thing i will say about my path that's very meaningful is just one-on-one -on -one work with people um they're they're at a variety of places in their life journey and and they're looking for a variety of outcomes, but it's, it just endlessly fascinates me how people show up and they're so niche, right? They're people who are looking for some kind of support or guidance at a juncture in their life, but they're also very open to and looking for um, ideas and uh, into spirituality. And it's, it's, it fascinates me, but I would say one of the most fulfilling things I do actually, and the retreats really grew from this is just having conversations one-on-one -on -one with people and helping them sort out their lives. It's uh, deeply meaningful, and it dawned on me a few years in that, look, if a professorship opened up tomorrow that I was able to uh, attain and accept, <laughs> the one-on-one -on -one guidance work wouldn't go anywhere because it's it's too meaningful, I think, to myself and from what I understand, too valuable to the people coming. So that's another main piece of my life. But other than that, I think we've done a pretty good job of covering what I do for a living and conveying to people why it's next impossible to curate a business card for what I do. <laughs> <laughs> it would be a very big one, wouldn't it? Yeah, no, we really appreciate all the work that you do. I'm sure on behalf of all the people who've been interviewed by you or just listen to the new books uh, podcast that you do, they they appreciate you. Uh, and, and here you are, I see you now, having gone through all the study, all this continuing practice now you're on the other side, you're the teacher, you're the wisdom teacher, uh, and you have students coming to you. And, and I know, having spoken to you offline about these things, how seriously you take it, uh, and how responsible you are in your kind of approach to, to um, having these one-on-ones and, and having students and having groups. And uh, it's a rare find in academia. And uh, so anyways, I appreciate connecting with you both as a colleague and as a person. And um, and I look forward to to seeing where life takes us, and where life takes you. 
<laughs> likewise, likewise. It's uh, it was a pleasure. I'm I'm glad you came up with this harebrained scheme, and I'm I'm glad that I accepted. Um, and it just so happens it was serendipity. I had I had a a, a fairly high profile scholar lined up for interview three hundred, and they were pulled away. Uh, you know, life life happens. Things come in the way, and um, and then like the very next day, you're like, hey how about we interview you? I'm like, okay, no, I don't think so. Or yes, okay, let's do it. Um, so I'm glad we got to do that. Um, and I'm sure that we will um, have more conversations and perhaps even collaborate at some point. So thank you very much for suggesting it and for interviewing me. Thank you, Raj. Look forward to it. For those listening, you have, of course, been listening to Dr. Raj Balkran <laughs> talk about God knows what or God's know what. Um, but hopefully it was as enjoyable for you as it was for me. I think that uh, Christopher Miller survived. I think he did a great job. Uh, until next time, keep well, keep listening, keep keep uh, reading, and keep contemplating um, who this strange person is who runs the Indian Religions podcast. Bye for now.